The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you take your Bibles now and turn in them to Matthew chapter 6. And we uh, come to a new chapter in our study in, in Matthew's Gospel and in the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like to begin by asking a question, a question that comes naturally from this text that we're looking at this morning. And that is simply this. What is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? The word actually comes from the ancient Greek, and it means an actor, an actor, somebody who acts for a profession. In other words, they, in ancient Greece, would get dressed up in a costume, and they would hold a mask in front of their face, and they would play a role. And these kind of plays were very popular uh, in ancient Greece, and uh, a lot of times the acting troops, the groups were small, and so you had to play lots of roles, lots of different roles. And, the, and you'd always know which role was being played by which mask was being held up in front of the actor's face. So to an ancient Greek, a hypocrite was an actor, somebody who played something that they really weren't. To a lot of non-Christians here in America, a hypocrite is somebody who goes to church. Have you ever dealt with that before? If you go to church, you're a hypocrite. Or if, for example, you believe that there's such a thing as absolute truth, or if you believe that your sins have been forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, and if you hold to a standard and desire to live a righteous life, to some people you're a hypocrite. To the dictionary, a hypocrite is a person who fakes beliefs or feelings or virtues that one does not truly possess. But to Jesus Christ, a hypocrite is somebody who outwardly goes through the motions of love for God or love for neighbor, but their heart is actually far from God, far from neighbor. It says in Matthew 15, 7, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This, to Jesus, is a hypocrite. Now, in this day and age, this modern technological society we live in, reality, you know, truth, and that which is just an illusion is getting harder and harder to differentiate. I saw uh, recently on PBS a, a program about the use of computers in making films. And they said that the popular uh, movie Titanic, actually a lot of those scenes in which there are large crowds on the boat waving, those are all computer-generated people. Did you know that? They weren't real people. What they got is a couple of actors or actresses to do the motions, and then they worked it into the film by computer. You might wonder why they didn't have more close-ups of them. Apparently, the technology is not good enough yet so that they can get hair right. They can't do the hair by computer. It doesn't look right. So they're working on it. And once they get that problem solved, you know what they, they think will happen? There will be a computer-generated actor or actress who doesn't exist at all. And you'll go to see movies about this person, and you might even write him fan mail or say, that he's my favorite actor. doesn't even exist. Now, isn't that a little bit strange? Now, that may be 10, 15 years down the road, but it's coming. And they may, may not even tell you. you know. And, and then won't you feel foolish when you find out there wasn't even a human being behind it? It's all computers. But I don't really know if we're actually heading to that, but that's something that people are facing on the Internet. They'll interact with somebody, and they can create a whole image of a life, and it's not even there. It's not even there. But Jesus said this is a real issue with the church, namely that there be reality, there be truth behind what is presented, that people be truly members of the kingdom of heaven. And that's where chapter 6 really gets in here. 
In chapter 6, Jesus turns a corner. Now, in order to understand where we are, we have to look to where we've been. We've already been through one chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about what it's like to be in the kingdom of heaven. And you remember, he begins with the Beatitudes, which is a series of heart characteristics of those who are truly in the kingdom of heaven, truly saved, shall I say, truly born again. And he says the whole thing starts with being a spiritual beggar. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says. So as you're a beggar, you go into a hungering, a yearning for God, and that extends into every single thing you do. A spiritual beggar is hungry and thirsty, also merciful and kind to others because they know that they themselves are really in need of forgiveness from God. And from that original set of characteristics, it moves on, and Jesus begins to deal with the law, as we've seen in chapter 5. The proper role of the law in the life of a Christian. Remember, Jesus said that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so then he takes the law and moves through a series of cases, a series of issues in which he's dealing with the negative side of the law. Now, the law had a negative and a positive side. The negative side was to restrain evil. It's a bunch of thou shalt nots. And there are thou shalt nots. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal, etc. And so the law restrains evil. But remember what Jesus did. He takes the law and probes down deeper into the heart. And he says, all right, you may not murder, but are you angry? You may not commit adultery, but is there lust in your heart? And so on. So Jesus is looking at the heart in terms of the restriction of evil. But then in chapter 6, we get to the positive side of the law. The law also encourages pious actions. It encourages people to do what's right. It doesn't just restrain evil, but it exhorts us to do right. And the Jews believed that there were three basic types of piety. There was giving to the poor, giving financially to the poor. There was prayer and there was fasting. And what Jesus does is the exact same thing. He takes the law and moves deep into the heart and says, okay, if you're going to give to the poor, if you're going to pray, you're going to fast, what is your motive? Or what is your reason? And that's what's before us today as we look at these first 21 verses. Now, we're not going to look at the, at the uh, Lord's Prayer today. We're going to do that over the next couple of weeks. So as I recite these verses, as we look over them, I'm going to skip right over the section on the Lord's Prayer. Believe me, it doesn't mean that I think it's not important. I think it's so important that we need to concentrate on it. But the first three cases are all drawn together with a similar theme, namely that we should fight against hypocrisy and make our righteous acts truly heart-righteous. Listen now to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Skipping down to verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. They disfigure their, fa their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth. 
they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And now verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now you may wonder why I included this last verses, verses 19, 20, uh, 20, and 21. Some think this only teaches about materialism, but I think it actually knits the whole chapter together. As you look at the, at the outline that I've given you, this chapter is broken up into two sections. Verse 1 through 21 is Christian piety in religious duties. And the key principle we see right at the beginning, verse 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. And then Jesus brings us through these three case studies, giving to the poor without hypocrisy, verses 2 through 4, uh, praying without hypocrisy, verses 5 and 6, and then fasting without hypocrisy, verses 16 through 18. And then there's a kind of a hinge verse or a transition uh, set of verses from 19 through 21 about storing up treasure in heaven. And then he moves on to talk about Christian piety in physical concerns, freedom from materialism, that we should be free from care about material wealth. Verses 19 through 24. Freedom from daily anxiety. Verses 25 through 34. And then, in general, a freedom to live for heaven and for God. So that's all of chapter 6, and that's where we're going. We're not going to get to all of that uh, today. But we're going to look at this whole issue of hypocrisy, which is such a major theme in the beginning of chapter 6, and the danger of hypocrisy. Now, Jesus talks about this right at the beginning when he says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So Jesus here is getting to the issue of motive. Motive. Why do you do what you do? Do you really know why you do what you do? Sometimes I don't think we really do. Our hearts are so complex, aren't they? Our motivations, the things that move us, that, shall I say, manipulate us. What influences us? Do we really know? Jesus says that there's something that we need to be careful about. And so Jesus uses this kind of language, be careful or be on guard or be diligent that you not do your acts of righteousness before men. He thinks this is a danger, a real problem for us. And these, he's speaking to people in the kingdom of heaven. People who are included in the kingdom of heaven have to be on their guard to purify their motives for everything they do. The danger here is the danger of hypocrisy. In other words, seeming to love God, seeming to love neighbor, but your real motive is something different, like an actor. The outward appearance very different from the true reality. St. Augustine said, the love of honor is the deadly bane of true piety. Other vices bring forth evil works, but this brings forth good works in an evil way. Do you see the danger? When you're loving reputation, you're loving honor from other people or whatever your reasons are, if they're anything but true heart relationship with God, then it's hypocrisy and it's dangerous because it brings forth good deeds in an evil way. I think that behind idolatry, the worship of false gods, this was the second most significant sin in Israel. They were a very religious people, constantly thinking about outward expressions of religion. And Jesus said, you've got to get to the heart. What is your heart relationship with God and is it right? And hypocrisy is not just, was not just a problem for Israel, but it's a problem for the church today, isn't it? Any of you who have tried to share the gospel with co-workers, with neighbors, with friends, very soon you'll run into the issue of hypocrites in the church. Have, can you say amen to that? How many times have you heard about that? Hypocrites in the church. Are there hypocrites in the church? 
Yes, there are. Are there hypocrites outside the church? Yes, there are. I think this is a great place to come and get cured of hypocrisy. And it's a passage just like this that'll do it. If you get somebody that'll preach the word and talk to you honestly about it, maybe you can get cured of your hypocrisy. We all have it to some degree. I remember talking to a a guy I used to work with, and he was so skeptical about religion and Christianity and all that. And he said, church is just full of hypocrites. So I said to him, what's a hypocrite? So I don't know. I've never really thought about it. (laughs) So it's kind of funny how he puts the label on the church, but he doesn't really know what he means. He said, I don't know. I guess a hypocrite is somebody who has a certain standard, but they don't live up to it. I said, well, what would you say are your standards for life? If you, if you could make up five or ten good rules for living, what would they be? So I don't know. I've never really thought about it. Unreflected life, not really thinking much about these things. But I forced him to it. So he was thinking about it. He said, well, he started to make some rules and regulations. I said, what you ought to do is just write them down. Write down five or ten just good rules for living. Get them from anywhere you want. All right? And then just watch yourself over the course of a year. And see if you yourself live up to your own standards. Pretty soon you may join the rest of us ranks of hypocrites. Nobody lives up to the standard that they espouse and they uphold. But there's a deeper issue here of hypocrisy, isn't there? It's somebody who pretends to love God, but inside they don't love God. Now, that's a more dangerous issue. That's a case of somebody who, I don't know, walked the aisle or said some prayer at some point 20, 30 years ago, but there's really been no continuation from that point. There's no true love for God. As someone once said that a life for Christ is far more significant than a decision for Christ. A true decision for Christ always leads to a life for Christ. And so hypocrisy in the church is actually a big problem. Now we get to this issue and there's a kind of a delicate balance in the Christian life here, isn't there? Because didn't we just hear in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. So you're supposed to be doing your good deeds in front of everybody so that they can see them. But here in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Doesn't this seem like a contradiction? Well, what is it? Are we supposed to shine our light or are we supposed to not do our deeds before men to be seen by them? Well, there's really only a contradiction on the surface. The real issue has to do with why you do what you do. It has to do with motive. Look at the motive of of Matthew 5.16. It says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds, what? And praise your Father in heaven. Who gets the honor or glory from those good deeds? Father in heaven. All right? Matthew 6.1, different story. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. Whole different motive. Now we're doing it for show so that people can see and comment on what a good person we are. A whole different thing. So there's really only a contradiction on the surface. A.B. Bruce kind of put it in perspective for us. He said, you know, if you just want to sort this thing out, this is what I'd recommend to you. Play off your temptations. Play off your temptations. Do the opposite of whatever you're tempted to do. When you're tempted to hide, show. When you're tempted to show, hide. You see? And Satan is always working opposite what God wants. So he wants us to let our light shine. We're supposed to have an influence in society. We're supposed to preach the gospel. Instead, we pull in. We're cowardly. We're afraid. We never say a word about Jesus. We don't make any influence in society around. Do the opposite. When tempted to hide, show. A man of prayer. Oh, what a woman of God. You see, when you're around those people, you need to be careful. All right, I love good encouragement. I really do. But it can be a dangerous thing. Because then all of a sudden, the eyes get off glory for God. And now you're starting to want that applause. You're starting to want that praise. Start to live for it. So play off your temptations, says A.B. Bruce. I think as we look across this section, we're given three choices. Christ is basically putting before us three choices. The first choice is this. 
the choice between pleasing self or pleasing God. Now, which is it going to be? Are we going to please ourselves or are we going to please God? Now, some might think that the choice here is actually a choice between pleasing men and pleasing God. You know, a human audience, this kind of thing. But I don't think so. Why is it that we want to please people? Is it because we love people so much and want them really to be happy? No. The reason we want to please people is so that they'll be nice to us or think well of us or give us good things. It really comes back to self, doesn't it? That's why we become people pleasers, because it benefits us. It's not because we're so altruistic thinking about others and we want them to be happy. It comes back to self, the difference between pleasing self and pleasing God. Actually, I think that whole thing of tempted to hide, show, tempted to show, hide, that's just two sides of the same coin, isn't it? The reason we don't evangelize is we don't want people to think poorly of us. We don't want to be seen as a holy roller or something like that. And so we hide because of human reputation. And so the flip side also is true. We show before other people who will recognize our righteousness for the same reason, human reputation. It's two sides of the same coin. So the issue here is, are we going to please self or are we going to please God? The second choice is, are we going to live for present or for future rewards? Which is it going to be? You have to choose. Are we going to live between present or future rewards? Now, the issue of rewards seems somehow unchristian, doesn't it? We should just be willing to do what's right just because it's right. Isn't that true? Doesn't that sound so holy? If that's the way we should think, then why does Jesus talk about rewards so much? Is it, is it just a concession to our weakness? No, he's trying to shape our faith. He's trying to get us to think about what truly matters, the pleasure of God. Now, we're going to talk more about rewards when we get to Matthew 6, 19 through 21. But the whole thing is Jesus is consistently laying rewards before us, isn't, isn't he? But he's laying rewards that are eternal, that do not go away. Look what he says in Matthew 5, 12. Talking to the persecuted one, he says, Rejoice and be glad because what? Great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you want a prophet's reward? Then stand up under persecution. So what is Jesus doing? Is this, he's appealing to our weakness here, trying to tempt us like a tempter? No, he's saying you should want rewards. You should want the right reward. Be willing to stand up under persecution. Matthew 5, 46. If you love those who love you, what does he say? What reward will you get? We should be concerned about rewards, says Jesus. Matthew 6, 1, we have it right here. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The danger is you'll lose your reward. And again, in verse 2, in verse 5, in verse 16, he says three times, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. So the real choice is not about reward or not reward. The real choice is do you want your reward here and now or do you want it eternally? That's the choice you have to make. The third choice is the choice uh, between living constantly before an invisible God or not. Living constantly before an invisible God or not. Genesis 6, 13, 16, 13 says, You are the God who sees me. Meditate on that. You are the God who sees me. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I say that the darkness will hide me, even the darkness is as light to you. God sees everything we do. And Jesus three times says, Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. On Judgment Day, when you stand before God, won't you want it to be the case that the things you did in secret were righteous things and not sinful things? Because God can see it all. And so there's the choice. The choice is between living before an invisible God who sees everything you do or turning away from that and pretending that he doesn't see you. Now let's look more carefully at each of these cases. The first case is the case of almsgiving. Almsgiving, or giving to the poor. Giving without hypocrisy. Now the Jews believed that giving to the poor was the highest act of righteousness. As a matter of fact, they thought that if you gave money to the poor, it would pay for sin. It would pay for sin. Listen to Tobit 12.8. 
Tobit, by the way, is included in some versions of the Bible. It's called an apocryphal book. It was written by Jews about 100 or 200 years before Jesus. And this is what it says. It is not scripture, by the way. It is better to give to charity than to lay up gold, for charity, listen to this, will save a man from death. It will atone for any sin. Is that a biblical idea? That you can pay for your sins with money? Let me tell you something, folks. Only one thing pays for sin, the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that pays for sin. I don't care how many good, good works that you do. They'll never pay for sin. The whole thing with good works is that God expected them all along anyway. There's no extra credit for doing what God expected. And so you, therefore, you can't use your good deeds to pay for your sin. Only one thing can pay for sin, the blood of Jesus Christ. But that's what they believed, and it's so sad. Listen to this, wisdom of Sirach. How many of you have wisdom of Sirach in your Bible? All right, it's, it's, it's there in some versions. Wisdom of Sirach, 3.30, listen. As water will quench a flaming fire, so charity, or giving to the poor, will atone for sin. Wrong, it does not. But that's what they believed. Now, the Roman Catholic Church bought into this a little bit. Pope Leo the Great said this, By prayer we seek to appease God. By fasting we extinguish the lust of the flesh. And by almsgiving we redeem our sins. Oh, my goodness. Nothing can wash away sin but the blood of Jesus Christ. But that's what they believed. Well, back in Jesus' day, they were looking for more, though, than just the forgiveness of sins, weren't they? They wanted something else. They wanted something here and now. So what do they do? They announced it with trumpets. They blew the trumpets. Do, 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 do. Everyone notice, I want you to know how much I'm giving. I am giving five denarii to this poor person. Did you see that? You see him, he's here every day, and I'm giving five denarii. Okay, everyone clap for me. Very good. All right, announcing it with trumpets. Oh, don't clap. That's fine. <laughs> clap later. So this is the kind of thing. They're not just looking for forgiveness for sins. They're looking for something here and now. What is it they want here and now? They want respect. They want honor. They want somebody to say, oh, what a righteous man. What a generous person. That's what they want. Now, I don't find anywhere, I wish I could, but I don't find anywhere an actual account from archaeology of people who announce giving with trumpets. I think Jesus is just using a figure of speech saying people who trumpet their righteousness, people who, who proclaim what good people they are, and that's what it is. Now, are there any forms of modern trumpet blowing? We call it blowing your own trumpet, this kind of thing. I saw one in a Christian magazine recently. You know, you can give to uh, a charity and they will send you a plaque and they will put your name on the plaque and the amount that you gave and you can hang it up there on your wall. And you know what I would say to you? Go ahead and hang it. Truly, I say to you, have received your reward in full. All right? I hope you enjoy it. You got it. It's up there on the wall. And every person who comes in and sees that plaque will say, oh, what a generous, if you gave a lot, what a generous person you are, all right? There's lots of modern trumpet blowing. But the deeper issue here is, do you really want it now? Do you want your reward now? You should say, no, I don't want it now. Recently, I was with my daughter, Jenny, and we were at an uh, um, uh, inner city ministry, and one of the things that they do with the kids is they have to motivate them to sit down and be quiet, okay? You can get nowhere with a room full of... of sixth to eighth graders or even younger kids if they won't sit down and be quiet. So you know how they motivate them? They motivate them with candy, all right? And they give the candy awards to those that are sitting most quietly. And uh, Jenny happened to get a reward, and uh, we, we had been talking about rewards that week, talking a lot about it, and she was looking at the candy bar, and we started talking. It wasn't a candy bar. It was some form of candy. And we started talking about it, and she said, I said to her, Jenny, you have a choice. You can eat it now, or you can eat it in heaven. Which do you want to do? She said, I want to eat it in heaven. I said, well, how can you do that? She said, give it away. All right, and she found somebody who had been sitting quietly but didn't get candy, and she gave it. And uh, I said, Jenny, why did you do that? She said, because it lasts longer in heaven. Isn't that great? 
that lasts longer in heaven. And so Jesus is trying to appeal to us and say, get out of this area. Don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up treasure in heaven where it'll last forever. Do things and don't tell anyone about it. Do things because an invisible God sees what you're doing. Not because you want something here on earth. And so this is so, so scary, so shocking when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Do you know in Scripture there's two places in which Jesus uses this kind of language? Two places in Scripture. One of them is when his hands are stretched out on the cross. Do you remember his last words in John's Gospel? It is finished. That was a, a word that was used and put on a debt, stamped on a debt that said all the debt is paid in full. When Jesus' blood was poured out, he paid the debt in full. There's nothing left. You're free from your sins forever by faith in Jesus Christ. Paid in full. That's one time. Here's the other time. Good deed you do here on earth to be seen by other people, paid in full. Nothing left. Don't expect anything on judgment. They'll give you nothing. You got what you were looking for. You were looking for praise from people. You got it. You got it. But if you're seeking praise from heaven, you're pre seeking the praise of your heavenly father, you'll get that too. Not yet. You wait by faith. You wait by faith. And you'll get it then. So this is the whole issue. It's the right pursuit of rewards. Now, when we get further on in this, I'm going to talk more about rewards. There's so much to say about this. It's such an important topic. But I want to move on, talk about the issue of prayer. Now, the second case is the issue of praying without hypocrisy. Now, Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's a promise. He'll give it to you if you do it for that reason. Secret, private prayer. Now, isn't really this the same teaching, just a different spiritual discipline? It really is. It's the same idea. Are you living before an invisible God? Or are you making a show of it? Now, these hypocrites, the Pharisees and scribes and others, were standing up on the street corners of all places, praying, oh God, they're lifting up their hands, you see. Oh, how ugly that is. It may seem righteous, but it's really so self-serving. They love the places of honor at the banquets and the most important seats at the synagogue, said Jesus in Matthew 23. That's what they want. They want earthly rewards, earthly esteem. And so they think that by praying, they'll get it. And in that kind of society where people really did esteem prayer, they did. Oh, how long and how ornate and elaborate his prayers are. Can I tell you something? It's a struggle for me. I'm just being very honest. When I get up here to pray in front of you, to remember who I'm talking to. And so when I get up to pray, I like to pause for a minute and just think. I'm not standing in front of an audience of people. I'm standing in front of God so that my, my prayer may be to him. That's my desire. And Jesus is talking about praying before God, not before people. Are your prayers a little more ornate, a little more elaborate when you pray with other people than they are when you're alone? I don't, I don't know. Only you can answer that question. Now realize this. Jesus is not against a prayer meeting. He's not against Christians gathering together to pray. There's nothing wrong with public prayer. The issue is your motive. What is your reason? What are you trying for in your prayer life? What Jesus is saying is that true prayer is prayer offered to an invisible God who sees what you're doing. Jonathan Edwards, I'm going to talk more about this next week, but Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor in western Massachusetts during the time of the Great Awakening in the 18th century, was an astute observer of the moving of the Spirit, astute observer of what effect grace had on the human heart. And he circled private prayer as one of the key marks of true salvation. Private prayer. It's what you do in secret in prayer that is a mark of whether you're born again or not. It's one of many. 
But he circled this, and he wrote a whole sermon on it entitled, Hypocrites Deficient in Private Prayer. We'll talk more about that next time. But this is a key issue, your private prayer life. Now, the third issue here is the issue of fasting without hypocrisy. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Isn't that so sad? They're putting on a mask. Oh, I'm so hungry. Why are you hungry? Well, I just happen to be fasting today. How long have you been fasting for? Since this morning. And uh, how, how much longer are you going to go? I don't know. I'll let you know when I'm done. I'll tell you. It's uh, just hypocritical. It's an outward show. Fasting. I, I find that in all, the, in all religions of the world, you're going to get the same thing. Almsgiving, you're going to get prayer, and you're going to get fasting. These three are key in almost every religion. The Muslims lift it up this way. They say that prayer... Let me see if I can remember this. Prayer gets you halfway to the gates of heaven... And fasting gets you right to the gates and almsgiving gets you in. Salvation by works. See, your good deeds pay for your sin. That's the way they look at it. Actually, I've been in a Muslim country and when they give to the poor, when they give uh, to the poor, they expect, uh, the poor expects that they thank them because they just help them earn their salvation a little bit more. It's a totally backward way to look at it. It's the same thing with the, with the prayer and with the fasting. Ramadan, that month of fasting, actually more food. I, I've, done a, uh, I've received some information on this. 20% more food is consumed during the month of Ramadan than any other month of the Muslim year because they don't eat during sun hours. They eat after the sun, before the sun has come up and after the sun goes down, and boy, do they eat. I mean, they eat, all right? Okay, what kind of fast is that? You know, it's a hypocritical, it's an outward show. Now, why, why should we fast? I think there are three reasons. Number one, mourning over sin. Grief over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Remember? Well, one of the ways we show sadness or mourning over sin is by fasting. Jesus linked the two. Matthew 9, 15. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom, that is Jesus, will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. You see, Jesus links fasting and mourning. Remember the, the revival under Jonah's preaching. And Nineveh was going to be destroyed. And the people repented. And what did they do? They fasted. They showed that they were sad for their sins. So uh, mourning over sin is one reason. The second reason for fasting is discipline of the body, discipline of, that, of the drives or the appetites of, of the body. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, uh, Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest after I've preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. Well, how does he beat his body? Well, he disciplines himself. Fasting is a, is a physical discipline. It's also a good way to lose weight, but you shouldn't go on too long. I mean, you need to keep eating regularly, but the point is that fasting... Uh, controls appetites, it controls drives, and it affects you in that way. The third reason for fasting is seriousness in prayer. In Acts 13, the church in Antioch fasted and prayed before they sent out missionaries. This very day, we're going to be sending out some missionaries from our midst. We're going to be praying for them and committing a mission team that's going to South Africa. But the church in Antioch did it with fasting in prayer. Fasting in prayer. Jesus gives us an example in this in that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. 40 days. Now, that is a fast. But Jesus had total control over his bodily appetites. Total control. Fasting was one of the ways he showed that. Now, I tend to think either you are incredibly righteous and so obedient to Jesus' injunction here, and you put oil on your head, and you wash your faces, and I never see any of you fast. And I think that is so good if you are, in fact, fasting. I think, on the other hand, it may be one of the forgotten disciplines of the Christian life. You only know, I mean, but how often have you fasted in the last year or two years? A fast is a choice to abstain from food and drink for a period of time for spiritual purposes. How often have you done that in the last year or two? Only you know. 
Now, Jesus didn't say, if you fast. He said, he said when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, etc. So fasting should be the part of the Christian life. But the bottom line here is the same as the other two case studies. Don't make a big show of it. Don't tell people that you're fasting. Do it in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, how are we going to apply this to ourselves now, today? I guess the first thing I'd like to do is speak to somebody who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In the many years that I've been sharing the gospel with people, inevitably I find that people who do not trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and yet think that there will be a judgment day coming are clinging to good works and they're counting on good things they do to outweigh their bad. Maybe there's a scales like this. If you have more good deeds than bad deeds, I don't know where this idea comes from, but it, it's in there. Your good deeds can somehow pay for your sins. Let me say it again. Nothing can cleanse from sin but the blood of Jesus Christ. So if today you are trusting in your good deeds, you will get nothing for it. Your good deeds cannot pay for your sin. Come to Jesus today. Give your faith to Him. Trust in His shed blood for your eternal salvation. But no, let me speak to those who are Christians, who are members of the kingdom of heaven. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart today? What are you counting on? What are you thinking of? And in terms of your righteous acts, have you stored it up on earth or you have, have you committed it to an invisible father who sees everything you do? My first question to you is simply this. Do you live a disciplined life? Do you give to the needy? Do you pray? Do you fast? Is this part of your life? Jesus assumed it would be part of your life. We live in a different age now than the Jews back then did. Maybe you're not tempted to show because there's nothing to show and nobody would respect you for it anyway these days. But the first test is, is this part of your life? But the second is to dig down and look at your heart motive for everything you do. Are you doing it because you want to please an invisible God or are you doing it for some earthbound reason? And that's the very thing that Jesus wants us to do as we sift through our good deeds. Don't be an actor. Don't be like one of those computer-generated people where there's all outward show and no reality behind it. Don't be a hypocrite, but be somebody who truly loves God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and truly loves neighbor as self. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.